Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, now that you've finished eating all your clams at the Sunday brunch with Foud Ramses, don't have a heart attack, give anyone the evil eye, get your snout out of joint, or spit in the fog. <laughs> and while you're at it, be sure to complete your Moamo syndrome because mutatus mutandus, and with the necessary changes having been made, here come the X-ray girls and the secret marines. It's our favorite art band and our fourth and final week in a row with Zoog's Rift. It's SST 123, the Zoog's Rift album, Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course. And Brant, we have one heck of a special guest, don't we? Yeah, John Truby's on the on the podcast. John, man, the guy drops some knowledge <laughs> on us. Yeah, great intro, by the way, there, man. Hey, I thought, you know, Zoogs deserved it. Yeah. So, Brant, hit me with some Zoogs-worthy spiels this week, man. It's our last one. Okay. I have a an entry into the last 10, Ryan. Whoa, yes! Yeah. These are Do it. This is how light I was on spiels this week. This is the last 10 records that I listened to. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. I'll dig it. Okay. We'll see how many of these you, you've heard before. Ooh, okay. There's a few recommends in here if you haven't. Okay, so Monday morning, I'm I'm at work, and I needed a little Monday morning pick-me-up, so I, I threw on an album by a band called The Crack, and the album's called In Search Of. Do you know that record? Never heard it. Okay, you have to hear that, Ryan. It's uh, It's been reissued a number of times on, like, Captain Oi and stuff like that. It is just an amazing street punk album, but with a heavy Slade influence. Huh. Are they from the UK? They are. Were. Okay. Yep. Okay. There's also a, a compilation called All Cracked Up with demos and singles, but this is the one to hear. The Crack in Search Of. Listen to that record, Ryan. Okay, one. Okay, then I listen to Cosmic Psycho's Go The Hack. Every song is killer, pumps me up every time. Love that record. Is that on, that one's on Amrep? Amprep? Uh, geez, I'd have to dig it out and check. I think I have a reissue of it, and I can't remember who reissued them. Okay. Yeah. I thought a fair amount of theirs were on Amprep. Uh, maybe a bit later they were. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know if that one was originally... I know you've tried to get me into them in the past. Oh, you don't like Cosmic Psychos? Ah, uh, they just have never, never worked. Hmm. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna check out all ten, man. I'm digging, I'm digging more than anything that you're doing a last ten. <laughs> okay, well, go the hacks a good place to start. My favorite one is still is Oh, what a lovely pie by the band. But go the hacks a good place to start. You'd like that record, okay. man. It's got a bit of a swampy stooges scientists vibe to it i'm on it it's been a long you know what the last time you tried to get me uh to check out the cosmic psychos we were living in the same apartment building together you know how long ago that was oh yeah it's time then okay yeah. shrine builder this is a I like the name this is a super group it's been reissued recently too on the neurot label it's wino from St. Vitus and The Obsessed, Scott Kelly from Neurosis, 
Al Cisneros from Sleep and Dale Crover from the Melvins. Oh yeah, they that only, sounds good. They only did the one album, but it's good. It came out in 2009 originally. And maybe the reason I thought of this is because Dale Crover was on Conan Neutron's podcast. Did you get, yep. a, get a chance to listen to that? No, I, I've seen it posted a few times. I haven't listened to it yet. I bet you it's good. He's a he's a good dude. Yeah, well, spoiler alert, the Melvins have done, like, I don't know what it is, probably an EP, like the one they did with Flipper. They've done one with Mud Honey, and they do, oh, yeah. they do My War on it. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, Buzz mentioned that um, when he was on um, Conan Neutron's, like, podcast a couple of weeks ago, too. He mentioned that. Okay. And, and he was like, man, this is so good. We should do a bunch more of this. And I'm like, yep. Do you listen to Neurosis? No, that's another one that I tried way, way back. And I've not come around back to it. Maybe a little too heavy for you. I don't know. I like heavy. Yeah. Well, you should check out Neurosis. Yeah. Through Silver and Blood would be a good place to start. Or Souls at Zero. Like they were on Alternative Tentacles, man. Yeah, I know. Not everything on Alternative Tentacles is good, though. Yeah. Oops. But most of it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Kay. Then I... Totally random. The Neil Young and Crazy Horse album, Zuma. It's probably my favorite Neil Young album. It's a good one. Then I listen to this record, Dizbuster. It's called Gun Lighter Cricket. That's the name of the album. Came out in 1993 on Get Hip. They also have a single that came out in 1992 on ultra under records which is jeff doll's label just had to get that nice. in there for a doll reference it's alan clark and keith taligman from the lazy cowgirls oh no way yeah i bet you that's good yeah it's pretty good diz buster diz buster you know what that's a reference to uh dizzy from guns and roses or dizzy gillespie no good guess no it's a Blue Oyster Cult reference. <laughs> <laughs> I was close. I'm assuming that's why they used it anyways. Okay, then there's a new Dream Syndicate record. It's a double LP. Their third since reforming. It's called The Universe Inside, and this one is a little bit different from the band. I mean, they've got some long songs in their discography, like John Coltrane's Stereo Blues, for example. This one has... Like the shortest song is seven and a half minutes long. There's a 20 minute track, a couple of 10 minute tracks. It's very psychedelic. They've got a sax and a trumpet player on it. And then I'm curious if you've heard this one, Ryan, because this would be a good recommend for you if you haven't. Maybe subliminally, because you talked about the Gits docu documentary last week, I listened to the Evil Stig record. Do you know that record? Oh yeah. Joan Jett. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Gits with Joan Jett, for people who don't know. And there's a bunch of live stuff on there, too. And I really like that record. But I'm a, I'm a big Joan Jett fan, so. Then, Ryan, this is a band I've mentioned on the podcast before that you always laugh at, but I'm telling you, this band is good. The band is Junkyard. This is the band, uh, you know Junkyard, I thought, right? I thought you were going to mention Whitesnake. <laughs> <laughs> Junkyard's the band Brian Baker was in. You know that, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. So way more Guns N' Roses than like, I don't know, Poison or something like that. Like good rock and roll. They've reformed, I don't know, five or six years ago and put out a great record. They just released a couple months ago an unreleased album from 1992 
called Old Habits Die Hard on their label, Acetate Records, and it is awesome. Why am I? Why do you think I, I should like that one? Um, I mean, if it's Guns N' Roses, e well, you like I don't like you I don't like, like Guns N' Roses either, man. You like I AC? do like ACDC. Yes, I do. I think you'd like this record, man. Okay. Hey, have you heard um, that other band that uh, Brian Baker's in with uh, Bill Barbett from Jawbox, Jim Spellman from Highback Chairs, and Peter Moffat from Government Issue called Foxhall Stacks? Have you heard that one? No, I have not. Is it new? Ish, 2019. It's kind of, I would say, like a power pop record. Um well, maybe not power pop. I don't know. But Brian Baker's on it. And uh, I mean, his guitar playing's good on everything. And uh, it's it's not bad. I, I wouldn't call it a recommend for me, though. I only recommend heavy hitters for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's a heavy hitter recommend that you, you sent me. Lords of Bastard I checked out this week. Good, hey? Yeah, it is good. I'm sure you said this when you recommended them, but total big business vibe going there i would say oh yeah and again remember i got that for free from uh from ordering the latest well not latest but the gary lee connor reissue uh the dude from italy just stuffed it in the box for free what a nice surprise yeah for sure okay and then the last of my last 10 is the new one from datura 4 i'm sure i've mentioned them they probably made one of my top 10 lists it's Dom Mariani from the DM3 and the Stems and a whole bunch of other bands. The guy just like writes hit after hit. If you like, um, I don't know, it's kind of like Brent Bjork meets ZZ Top or something. It's just good boogie rock. And they, they put okay. out an album last year, so they're, he's really cranking them out. It's a good one. That's cool, it. Man. That's my last 10. Nice, nice. I appreciate more than anything, on top of all the recommends, the fact that you are in, you're adopting one of my segments. I yeah. love that. <laughs> okay, then. It... I've tried so many times over the years, and this is the only one where there's there's uptake. Yeah. First uptake ever. Well, honestly, it was just a pure lack of ideas on my part for a spiel. So, okay, here's a micro spiel. And then I'll kick it over to you. I got an email from this guy, Tony Brummel. He, he founded Victory Records and he's now started Mission 2 Entertainment. And I, I only mention this because it says in the body of the email that Dave Smalley's band Don't Sleep has a full-length album coming out on Mission 2 Entertainment called Turn the Tide. Yeah, that's going to be killer. Don't Sleep, uh, they had that 12-inch in the single. They were both awesome. Yeah. I knew you liked that band, so I thought I'd mention that in case you hadn't heard. And then also, Red Cross has a couple of reissues. Third Man Records is releasing Phase Shifter and Show World, a couple of their 90s albums on vinyl, which is really cool. Those are probably two of the more expensive albums in their back catalog, if you want to get them on vinyl. And then there's a... I think it's a 40th anniversary edition of their first six-song EP coming out on Merge, and it's got, I think, five or six bonus tracks, including a song recorded live at the church. No way. Yeah. (laughs) 
I didn't even know they had any record. I'm sure that's on a ghetto blaster, hey? Yeah, probably. For sure. <laughs> wow. That's cool, though. Good document. Yeah. There you go. There's my spiels. What do you have? Nice. Um, first, I- I've got two micro spiels. That's it, because I want to get into the interview. It's so killer. Um, first one is uh, I want to give you some quick street cred on a recommend of yours way back. Okay. And it it was... Um, you mentioned it once before, but you mentioned it most recently on um, our, our episode, uh, a few episodes back with Henry Kaiser on it. First of all, still like what a big thrill to have Henry on the show. I can't believe he came on for us. It's it's insane. Um, but I finally, I finally, finally checked out that five times surprise. Yeah. Um, and I've got, I got it on the double, double disc unit here. It's, it's pretty darn proggy and it has anthony parag on it from the mesthetics um but it's awesome and andy west too yeah. right yeah so um i i can't believe i took so long to check it out but man i was just digging it and the drummer i gotta check him out i gotta dig in to find out where like he is at jeff sipe yeah on drums yeah. oh my god he's just a monster i've heard only a tiny fraction of Henry's stuff, but keep in mind, he's got, what, what is it? Like 300 records he's played on or something. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. I've probably heard like 30 of them. This is easily my favorite thing that I've heard that he's played on. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's, it's some great modern avant-garde improv guitar music. Like it's, it's awesome. And you know, who would be great on this record is, is Mike Watt would be great on it too. Like if they were going to, like some sort of configuration of these guys and Watt in an ensemble would be fantastic too. Yeah. Well, remember Henry's doing some stuff with Watt this year. Yeah, it's cool. Well, I, did you ever check out that um, Psychic Temples record that Watt played on? I don't think so. Oh, dude. Okay. That's my recommend for you. That's a heavy hitter. Okay. Psychic Temples That's with the Watt band? on it. Yeah, it's basically a dude who plays with a bunch of musicians and whatnot. Um, he's got like four or five records. I've got three of them, I think. But the one with Watt on it, I think it's called, I think it's called Music for Bus Stops, and it's a play on music for airports, like the Brian Eno thing. Yeah, it's a play on the Brian Eno Music for Airports, but they do. I think it's Music for Bus Stops. I okay. can't, I can't recall off the top of my head. But it's great. I re- I love it's two songs, side A, side B. It's a full length, but it's awesome. Check that out. Here's my second microspiel. I don't know if you saw this, but I mentioned it a few weeks back on the show. Um, once everyone started quarantining themselves, people were putting on these little uh, apartment or bedroom performances and whatnot. And one of my favorite singers of all time had one, Scott Reynolds from All Goodbye Harry pavers and uh he since that time he had a stroke brand yeah scott crazy. reynolds had a stroke which is brutal man but apparently he's out and this saturday um from when we're recording anyways so it'll be two days before this episode drops but you can still dial it up on facebook he's going to do another live um in his a in his uh, bedroom type performance. And I've just, um, 
I just really recommend people check that out. The last one was Deadly. The guy can sing. And, you know, he can sing like some of his stuff, his phrasing is almost like jazzy scat type of uh, singing and phrasing. And he can play guitar but doesn't know how. He can play piano but doesn't know how. It's uh, He's just incredible. And everyone should check it out, especially since he's like coming back from a stroke and playing this uh, concert this Saturday. Yeah. Glad to hear he's doing better, doing okay. No doubt. Yeah. That's, that's, and he's, he's got a record coming out too. Hey, he did one at uh, the blasting room with Bill Stevenson. It's like him and acoustic guitar that, um, I, I definitely am looking forward to, to snagging this year, hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's it, man. Um, should we go, this is the fourth Zoogs album. Should we go to Lobotomy 4? Yes. History lesson, part one. All right, Brant. This is it. This is the this is the Coupe de Gracie, a month of Zoogs. It's now not what? our la- it's not our last Zoogs record though. There's a couple more. At least No, I know I know it's not, but it's our last it's our last Zoogs on the Zoogs Marathon. Yeah. Well, I okay, I'm gonna give you some stuff and then let's kick it over to John. And this is a combination of stuff I got from that Fireside Chat DVD. Thanks again to John Mortensen for sharing that and, and from the Clams in a Glass book. This is like the first Zoog's Rift album. So we've mentioned all this before, I'm sure, but back in New Jersey, he had a band called Zobus. Zobus splits up mainly over creative control battles and the rest of the band, which included Richie Haas and Scott Colby, uh, practices for a week without Zoogs. And during that time, he wrote an entire solo album, including like album art, co- had a whole concept, everything. And like Rich, Richie's talking about this in the documentary, and he's he kind of says like we realized we you know we were better off with Zoogs because we were struggling and. The, whole, the entire week that they were split up, he was just like in a creative frenzy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then Zoogs says in the documentary, he goes, I like this quote, you can't have a democracy in a band. Someone has to be the leader. Just as much as a band needs a leader, a leader needs a band. Then in, 19, wow. in 1976, they do some recording as Zobis, including the songs Lovely Girl, which... We talked about, I think, last week. Lovely Girl was an early version of Spit in the Fog. Would yeah. you fib to the FBI? The Man Who Slugged Your Mother. I Did So, which is on this record. And that Zobus tape, as we mentioned before, was at various times called Amputees in Limbo and With No Apparent Reason. And at this time, Scott Colby and Richie Haas are also contributing to the songwriting. Uh, but during that breakup, Zoogs starts telling them that he wants to start, change the name of the band and to Zoogs Rift's Micromastodons. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't like it. They're still arguing. Zoogs wants creative control. So Zoogs shops this demo tape to every label in New York City, big and small, doesn't get any takers. Rich says in the documentary, we were told repeatedly, if it were up to us, we'd sign you right now, but all the decisions are made on the West Coast. So they make the decision to move out to California in 1977. And it's Rich, 
Scott Colby, and saxophonist Mooch Urban, along with Zooks, who moved out. Here's an interesting fact, Ryan, that I thought you might like. Their drummer, Ron Raz Lorman, was supposed to, to move out, but he also doubled as a drum tech for George Duke's band, and he went back out on the road oh, with cool. them. Yeah, he went back out on the road with them instead. Nice. Yeah. Rest in peace, George. Rich goes, just about the day we arrived in California, Zoogs announced he was taking over the band and calling it Zoogs Rift's Micromastodons, which I thought was a terrible name, still do. We all got pissed off and Scott Colby quit. So they put up ads, they get a bass player and a drummer. The bass player, I believe, is Danny Buchanan. But they decided that um, the rhythm section couldn't play the parts they had Eric Williams on guitar, and he offered to play all the bass parts, and Rich offered to play all the drum parts in the studio. Rich had written most of them anyways on the drums. And then it was Zoogs and Jim Simcoe on saxophone and flute. Mooch Urban moved back to New Jersey. Zoogs gets a large amount of money from his father's life insurance policy and uses some of it to fund the album. In April of 78, they record the album in one week. Around this time, he meets John Sharkey, and John asks him to produce his album, Blood in the Road. Then Zooks decided to move to the San Francisco Bay Area, and while he's there, he decides to form Snout and to release Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course himself. While he was there, he decides he wants to round out the album with some songs he'd written, and he flies out Jim Simcoe, and John Truby comes there on his cross-country car trip to L.A., that's where they do the Morega recordings, and the LB, LP comes out in December of 79. Shortly after this, they move to Oregon, and the story picks up with last week's episode, Amputees in Limbo. Right. Here's one other thing I really like from that documentary. This is Zoogs talking about Dada and when he discovered it. He says, It seemed like the whole purpose of Dada was to A play with the irrational, and B, to basically fuck up society. The idea was to get people pissed off, not just merely for the sake of getting them pissed off. Dada was not just some nihilistic thing. It was meant to be constructive. He talks about how he got really into surrealism and he started painting, but he decided instead to take the surrealistic Dadaist principles and apply them to music. Should we kick it over to John Truby? Heck yeah. All right, we're joined by John Truby today. John, thanks for being on the show. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Okay, as I mentioned to you, we're we're kind of in this Zoogs phase where we've we just did Ipecac and Interim Resurgence, and now we're kind of in the the earlier phase with Amputees in Limbo and Idiots at the Miniature Golf Course on the Miniature Golf Course. Can you take me back to how you met Zoogs? I, I do have his book, Clams in a Glass, and he mentions that he was corresponding with you while you were attending Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Yes. Um, I first met Zoogs in April of 1975 in Trenton, New Jersey. There was an artist collective, this organization in Trenton, New Jersey, of all places that, that sponsored avant-garde uh, festivals and avant-garde events, artistic events, musical events, uh, run by a guy named Dennis Bathory Kitts, who is a whole you know, book in and of himself. He's a composer. He lives in Vermont now. But anyhow, there is a benefit concert to raise money for transmedia 
Zoog's band Zobus was playing there uh, with uh, Richie Hass and the band, Scott Colby, and the other players, and I was very impressed by their performance. I was showing one of my Super 8 films at that event, and I got his phone number, and we afterwards uh, corresponded and talked a lot on the phone and became very good friends. Okay. So this wasn't the show where he burned all his artwork? No, that was um, uh, the previous year, I think in 1974, uh, I, I may have briefly met him in 1974, where he burned all the artwork out in the uh, the, the plaza or in, uh, street area in Trenton. And my band, Gloop Knox and the Stick People, played there too. But I didn't really become acquainted with him until I, I, I met him again in 1975. Tell me about that band, Gloop Knox and the Stick People. Yes, um, I was attending Lawrenceville School, an elitist uh, boys prep school in New Jersey. Um, in uh, the early 70s, I met a uh, guy named Jim Nevius, one of my classmates, who he played in, in a band. And at that time, I was playing electric guitar, but never been in a band. And he said, maybe we you know, get, get together and play in my band. He never called me, so I followed up and called him because I was playing guitar. I was really anxious to be in a band. And uh, uh, so I subsequently joined his band. I lived in Princeton, New Jersey. He lived in Yardley, Pennsylvania. I would uh, once I auditioned for the band and got in his band. I would spend weekends uh, uh, traveling to Yardley, Pennsylvania, to rehearse every weekend in his band. Okay, and there's recordings of that band. Uh, the the only recordings of the teenage years back in 1975 are uh, some recordings I have on cassettes. We reformed. And uh, Jimmy and I reformed the band in, in 2011 and 2017 with some, uh, a couple additional players, not from the original lineup, and we recorded uh, two albums, which I, which I issued on my Truby Records label. Okay. So you're, you've decided to go to music school in Berkeley, and you're corresponding yes. with Zooks. Yes. Now, how does it come to be that you, you join his band? Uh, well, we've been in touch, and we had a, a, a very similar musical interest. We were sort of on the same page as being alienated outsiders and uh, nonconformists and uh, rebels and in, in attitude, at least, simply due to corresponding and trading uh, tapes, music tapes back and forth, and uh, long phone conversations. They came to be very good friends. Um, uh, he uh, and Richie Haas and the rest uh, uh, and other members of Zobus moved to California in, in 77 or 78. And then I followed uh, out to California to L.A. after I graduated Berkeley in 79. Uh, and I, I didn't really permanently relocate to uh, North Hollywood, North, uh, Los Angeles area until 1981. And uh, Zoogs eventually came back to L.A., from uh, Grants Pass, Oregon. He was living in Grants Pass, Oregon for a little bit, and he put together his band and invited me to be in his band, and I joined his band Okay. in L.A. in, in the early 80s. Now, when you first joined, it was as a guitarist. No, when I first joined the band, he wanted a bass player, so I played bass. And in fact, at times, there were two bass players. There was myself on bass and Danny Buchanan on bass. Two basses, Zoogs played guitar, John Sharkey on the keyboards, Richie Haas on drums. Okay. But for Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course, 
Did you play bass on that album? Do you know, or was it mostly guitar? No, I played guitar on that album. When we played live shows in in L.A., well, here's the way that it worked. Idiots on the Midnight Golf Course was comprised of um, almost like demo recordings that he recorded back in New Jersey that he initially issued on a cassette, I think, which was called With No Apparent Reason, with uh, uh, players like uh, Tom Nagy on drums, Mooch Urban on saxophone, uh, Richie Haas on vibes. Um, I forget who was playing, Pan, Pat Lindemeyer playing bass. I forget the, the lineup. So there were these uh, pre-existing recordings from the late 70s in New Jersey. And then um, when I initially uh, uh, left the East Coast and drove uh, to to California in 1980, Zoogs invited me to stop to visit him in Moraga, California, where he was living at the time, and he was recording some tracks for the album, uh, Idiots on the Miniature Golf Course. So I only recorded guitar on several of the, the, the tracks that he was using to fill out the album at that time, and uh, I didn't play on the whole album, just on those certain tracks and uh, I slept in his, uh, stayed at his apartment where he was living with Rishi Haas and uh, his girlfriend, uh, uh, then wife. I don't forget when they get married, Laura Rift. Uh, and so this was recorded around in Morocco. Actually, I think the recording studio was in Oakland. Jeez, I, I, I forget it. So long ago um, in Morocco. I mean, there's probably information on the back of the album. I haven't even looked. But, uh, yeah, so I recorded those tracks for that album in late 1980. Bay Sound Reproduction in Oakland is what it says on the back of the snow. Okay, that's LP. what it was. We were, I, I, stayed, I, I, I slept on his sofa in Moraga where he was living with Richie and Laura. And uh, then, yeah, we drove in his van to Oakland to do the recording. And it also lists some more that was re- tracks that were recorded in Hollywood. Uh, yeah, um... Actually, he may have re-recorded the tracks that he originally recorded in, in New Jersey. So that's probably true at a place called Pranava yep. uh, Studios, maybe. I, you know. Yep, that's, the, that's okay, the place. there we go, yeah. So if you can tell me maybe about a few of these other players, Eric Williams on lead guitar? Yeah, Eric Williams, I, I'm not real familiar. Uh, I don't know Eric really, really well. I met him a few times in passing in L.A. Eric Williams was an amazing guitarist. Uh, he, he's one of these people that's a natural-born musician, could pick up things very quickly. So if you do a Google search on him, you'll see that he played with a lot of big-name music acts because he did a bunch of studio recordings uh, in L.A. after he's in Zoog's band. Um, and he also uh, was recorded or performed uh, a bunch with Rita Coolidge, was in Rita Coolidge's band or, or recording sessions. Uh, Jim Simcoe on saxes. Yeah, Jim Simcoe uh, played, um, I think, mainly, uh, I remember him playing mainly soprano sax, but he probably played other saxes on the recordings. I'm not sure. Jim Simcoe is a very nice guy. When I first, when I initially went to L.A., before I bounced to go back to the uh, East Coast, where I uh, initially ended up in, in L.A. in late 1980, I slept on the floor in Jim Simcoe's apartment in Hollywood, he didn't have a car. He worked as a clerk uh, at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, a famous uh, New Age hippie tofu bookstore in uh, West Hollywood. And since I had a car, we would go out and drive around on his days off uh, just so he could sightsee and look around. And he let me stay there uh, um, 
uh, without without uh, conditions, you know, as long as they paid the rent there. Right. And I would have stayed there for a long time, but I sort of chickened out and bounced back to L.A. But Jim Kuzco is a very nice guy. He's very soft-spoken. He's sort of like a laid-back hippie guy, very bright and 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 uh, just a a, a a very good, a very nice guy. Okay. Do you know who Harry Tomorrow is? I'm assuming that might be John Harry Sharkey. Harry Tomorrow is actually the um, the stage name for John Sharkey. Okay. Uh, John Sharkey, the keyboard player, but I think he used the fake stage name um, Harry Tomorrow. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure that Harry Tomorrow was John Sharkey's stage name in the early days. Um, I could be wrong, but but it's credited for him playing piano, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's got to be John Sharkey. Got to be. Pretty okay. Sure. Here's a long shot. I'm wondering, I, can, I read in Zoogs' book that uh, John Sharkey had a band called Dead Air. Do you know anything about that band? Yeah, um, it, it was simply a John, a John Sharkey would uh, write and record some of his own songs. I don't know exactly who, who was in his, that band at that time. It, uh, Richie Hass may have uh, been involved in it. I, I don't know. There was just, I, I don't think it really played out live or did too much. It was like almost, I guess, a, uh, a demo band for to play for John to play his uh, or record his tunes. Okay, what about Richie's bands, The Solutions and The Beatniks? Yeah, uh, Richie's band um, uh, before Zoogs relocated from Grants Pass, Oregon, down to um, L.A. Uh, Richie had a band called The Solutions. They didn't really play out live. It was again mainly a band for recording. And when I first um, uh, arrived in L.A. in, uh, what, September uh, 1980. I, I lived with Richie for about six months, actually more like three months or so. It was August, August, September, October, November, December. Yeah, four, four or five months. I slept on an Agahaj sofa in Richie's apartment. I wasn't supposed to be there because uh, uh, the landlord wouldn't allow any other people in that apartment. It was just a, like a one-bedroom apartment for the lease, so I stayed I lived there with Richie, paying, helping to pay half the rent um, without the landlord's permission. And at that time, Richie had a uh, band together just to record some uh, a couple songs to put out a record. He had inherited some money from his family and had some money to record. So we recorded a couple tunes, Anniversary Polka and uh, 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 The 80s Are Over, and he put it out as a single and uh, that single still floating out there is commanding good money on the internet, and we recorded that um, uh, in uh, in the latter part of 1980. Okay, but it wasn't really like a. Uh, eventually, then after um, uh, after Zoogs came back to LA, and uh, uh, Richie was in LA in the in the early part of the 80s, then uh, Richie reformed the Solutions with the different personnel, and actually paid, played out and did some more recording on his own. And then around 1982, you do some re uh, recording sessions for amputees in limbo at City Recorders in Hollywood. Do you remember that at all? Uh, yes, yes. City Recorders was a cool uh, studio that probably seen better days. Um, I, I think it was 16 or eight or uh, 16 track studio. It was you could get in there really cheaply because, as I said, it had seen better days and there, uh, it wasn't being used much. So they were giving cut rates. Um, uh, rates uh, to musicians. I myself did a uh, a, a bunch of record uh, a, a song demo recording in there myself with my band, 
And then Zoogs uh, had us go in there, and we recorded a bunch of those tracks. I played, again, I played bass instead of a guitar. And it was a really crappy bass with a crappy amplifier that I borrowed from Richie Hass. And uh, I remember playing Shakers, Shakers uh, on uh, some of the uh, tunes. Okay. The, the recording quality was not that great. And I noted, I remember that they, a lot of the... Um, that the, uh, the tracks were pretty dry. There wasn't a lot of reverb or fancy production. He was part of the philosophy uh, for the time behind that area. Is back in the '70s, Zooks had tried to make more elaborate, uh, complicated music with uh, weird time changes and and really uh, meticulous, uh, uh, convoluted uh, baroque uh, arrangements. Uh, that would take a lot of rehearsals. And then the, the punk music came into vogue in the late 70s and 80s, and Zoogs, was try and, uh, Zoogs uh, for a while had got the band together in the late 70s uh, in L.A. and, and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. We never played out live, I think maybe one at a party, once at a party. Uh, but he, he, for some reason or another, he ran into roadblocks trying to get bookings for the band, or he gave up, or he was frustrated. So all the work he had done into rehearsing the band with all these difficult uh, arrangements, went nowhere. And when he returned to L.A., when he got the band together again, he decided to make more abrasive punk-influenced music because that was more popular at the time. And so he said, screw it. So he, he, his music was more hard-edged and repetitive and, and uh, uh, ridiculous. I mean, there were some... Uh, but, but it wasn't as meticulously arranged as the previous band because he was trying to... Um, sort of pander to that punk ethos of just uh, hard, uh, simplistic uh, uh, rock, right. you know, and he did that, but with his own twist. Yeah, I mean, if you read his book, for example, he there's definitely this on recurring theme of extreme frustration with the record industry and, um, you know, the inability to to get respect, I guess, for for his music. And it seems like around the time of Amputees in Limbo that he was particularly frustrated yes um uh, just as an aside i can tell you from knowing him for many years he had a lot of pent-up rage and, and anger and it's not related to specific it's not due to the cause of the music industry or anything like that it's just due to his upbringing or you know how what he encountered earlier he was the uh, quintessential short fat guy in school that was constantly picked on and he was very bright, so you take a bright, sensitive person who gets picked on a lot and can't fight back, and you can imagine this sort of this boiling, seething, simmering rage wanting to come out but doesn't have any socially acceptable way to come out. That's why it came out on the music, and that's why some, a lot of his lyrics are so are, are, are just um, uh, difficult to assimilate a lot of rage there and it's due it's due to being being the short fat guy in school picked on forever right that that also that idea of the the bright uh, sensitive person looking at everybody else and being alienated from their world and the mediocrity and the conformity and commercialism and consumerism materialism and money chasing the goals with all that and any thoughtful sensitive person looks at that and and perceives it as being a bunch of crap and the corruption of the world which is unpalatable and which profoundly alienates uh, the sensitive thoughtful person away from that and that's and and that's 
the rest of society, the rest of the world, all these idiots involved in all this crap. So it wasn't just the music industry. And eventually, at one, on one point, he has all this rage and alienation at the other end, trying to get a record deal. He's wanting to be accepted by these people that he despises. So there's that great inner conflict. Right. And I think the how I personally have come to deal with that is my feeling is if you really love music, you just play it for the love of it, and you don't you you no longer try to pander or find acceptance for the world. Music is a value in itself to to find joy in it itself rather than trying to find commercial success or money or fame or adulation. And that's I I've come to that conclusion myself. I don't think he ever got that far. He was always wanting that or needing that exterior um, way means to an end to get money or some sort of recognition, and that's what frustrated him. Right. The validation, maybe. The validation, but at the same time, he was very alienated and, how, and, and from, from, from the world. So why, 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 would, you, why would you even want to um, uh, seek acceptance from, from your enemies or people that you consider your, your, um, your inferiors? And that's the whole big conflict with uh, people like Zugs. You know, it just, uh, it's, uh, it's an intractable thing until he could uh, come to terms with it. So his outlet was music, and that's where all this, this seething rage comes out in the, in the lyrics. You know? Right. It seems like it also came out possibly on his bandmates from time to time. Um, yeah, well, he, he had kicked me out of the band a couple times, and even uh, there was one time for a few years where he wouldn't talk to me for several years, because he was uh, offended by uh, uh, some prank phone calls uh, that, uh, on a tape that I had given him um, that he that he was um, he he found offensive. So he could be Zoogs was very controlling. He needed to be in control. He had a very high opinion of himself, and he was conflicted in that um, he had all this energy and all this intelligence and all these ideas. Yet he didn't have any money. He refused to work for other people because he couldn't countenance the humiliation of having to answer to a boss and be being ordered around by idiots in these tedious, menial jobs, which were the only sort of way that he could possibly make money. It drove him mad. And then the madness comes out in those ferociously angry lyrics. Yeah, and, and it seems like you were kind of in and out of the band several times. You're... Your credit yes, on. I was a couple of times. Uh, one, <laughs> uh, the the first time he kicked me out of the band was um, in about 1982, and the, the, the way the band worked is we would show up to uh, uh, John Sharkey and I and Jim Simcoe would show up for rehearsals at his home in Woodland Hills four nights a week after work and drive all the way across the valley and rehearse for uh, several hours in his living room, and he and Laura uh, had a typesetting business in the home, and they were struggling, and they didn't, weren't making a lot of money, and were, and were needing help paying their bills. So he was um, asking that the members of the band kick in some money to help pay the electrical uh, bill in the house there. And I thought about it, and I thought, first of all, first, I myself am really poor. I was making like $5 an hour, and I also thought, this is his band, this is all his music, he's calling the shots, why should I contribute my, my uh, cash that I earn 
to his bandwidth, I'm also already contributing my time and energy and talent and driving all the way across the valley four nights a week to be in his band. And the idea of me paying to help to help pay for his electrical bill because of all the 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 massive amounts of electricity that the amplifiers were sucking out of the wall sockets are just too much to bear. And I, 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 I would contribute my time and energy and musical skill to be in his band, but I wouldn't contribute my cash. So that's where I drew the line. So at that point, it felt more like a cult rather than a band when I was asked to kick in the money. So I refused to. And then he kicked me out of the band rather than having a rebel in the band because a rebel is a, um, a might contaminate, infect the minds of the other band members. Because if I can get away without pay, kicking into the electrical bill, then the... Other, then that would give uh, the wrong idea to the other musicians of the band. Right. So, so it was like I was the devil, and he had to kick me out and get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> but we still, we we still were able to remain friends, and we said we we. But for a couple of years there, we didn't talk, or he was pissed off at me, or you know, I was the I was the devil. <laughs> and 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 thinking back, even though I wasn't, I maybe wasn't one hundred percent happy about being kicked out of the band. I am glad that I stuck to my guns. I will not be pushed around, and there's certain principles for which I'll stand up. And that was one of the times I stood up for myself. Well, you do pop up uh, later on on albums like Water 2, Murdering Hell's Happy Cretans. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, on these later recordings, I was not a regular band member that played out with them live. He would... Uh, be doing a recording session at Trigon Studios, which is Mark Mylar's uh, living room in, in, on Hannah Avenue in uh, Canoga Park. And Zoogs would, um, would have a recording session and invite me over just to do these bit parts. So my parts were not too involved or difficult or required lots of rehearsal. They just had me in just to have a guitar player in the band, and I was John Truby, and he was his friend, and... So that's what it was. But I wasn't a regular band member at that time. I think maybe I played a couple time, a couple live gigs with them, maybe in 1984, 85. I mean, it's all blurry. But I wasn't usually a, a regular player of the band after that. Okay. So by this point, you've got your own band going. Yeah, the Ugly Janitors of America. And that came about uh, through... Um, the notoriety I received from Blind Man's Penis that was put out by Enigma Records. I wanted to put out uh, some more records, um, but I didn't know how to go about doing it. In the meantime, well, it's a sort of long, convoluted story, but I'll try to make it short if I can. John um, Zoogs, um, there was a guy in the band named John. I forget his last name. Uh, and he was... Um, uh, sort of a arrogant intellectual. And uh, I used to do live performances in L.A. at the Anthony Club where I'd stand on stage and do poetry rants and scream and throw up yogurt and, and play with stuffed animals and just act like a, a neurotic um, uh, 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 idiot having a, a, apocaly- um, apoplectic fits on stage just for fun to, to, you know, to be a wise ass, right. and uh, this guy John, I forget his last name. He probably, um, I'll, I'll have to look it up. Um, had mentioned the Zooks that he thought that uh, I, John Truby, was somehow mentally ill or fucked up for doing this stuff on stage, and, I, and that I was seriously, uh, 
seriously, uh, psychiatrically disturbed, and mentioned it to, to Zugs, and then Zugs passed up the passed on the gossip to me. He says this guy John thinks you you're really mentally ill, and we had a good laugh about that. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, if I'm seriously mentally ill, then maybe I'll kill myself. I'll be a suicide. I'll be so 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 so. Um, neurotic and screwed up that I'll that I'll actually kill myself. And this is the, the sort of brutal, cold, black, irreverent humor that we indulged in at the time. And so to be a wise-ass, and you have to understand, I'm a young guy, I, I have no power, I have no status, I'm nobody, and also young guys, a lot, a lot of times they, they do risky, ridiculous, stupid, irreverent things. And so I decided to write a fake suicide letter inspired by this guy thinking that I was crazy. I wrote a fake suicide letter. Oh, my life is so miserable. I had a, a car crash. My girlfriend left me. I've, I've decided to end it all. You, um, I just wanted to let you know that you won't be hearing from me again. And I Xeroxed that, uh, uh, that suicide letter and sent it out to 10 people across L.A. I sent one to Matt Groening that I knew at the time before he became, before he became well-known with the Simpsons. He was a writer that I'd known, um, and uh, I sent one to Bill Hine, the president of Enigma Records, and other people, just as a prank to amuse myself. I just wanted to send this fake suicide letter, and I wrote, I wrote the letter, it was so over-the-top and full of humor and self-pity that I, I, that I, I just assumed anybody could see through the, the ridiculousness of it all and see the humor and realize it was a prank. However... Bill Hine of Enigma Records read it and thought I might have a, might actually have killed myself. And he called Matt Groening. And Matt then called me and he said, I think you should call back Bill Hine because he thinks that you killed yourself. So I called back Bill Hine and assured him that I didn't commit suicide. It was all a prank. And Bill invited me into, to, down to Enigma Records, uh, which was located then in Taurus, California. I came down and we met and he essentially gave me a record deal um, to to put out my first uh, LP, just on the basis of me sending out a prank suicide letter. <laughs> so um, the point of it being is that I wanted to put out a record really, really badly. I didn't know how to go about it. And as a result of doing a prank for the hell of it to amuse myself, I got what I wanted, uh, which is a record deal. The, the point being is that 10 million bands go to L.A. Everybody's trying to rec get a record deal. They want to put a record out. They want to be famous. They want to be in the music business and stuff. And they, and they deal with all these music business assholes and liars and cheaters and, and, and run through the mill with all these creeps. And most of them never get anywhere. And I was able to get what I wanted to do without these asshole intermediaries to deal directly with the head of the record label as a result of a ridiculous uh, prank of an angry young man. So I, I feel very proud of that. So that's what I was able to put out. So the record came out as a result of, of, um, uh, of doing that. And it was comprised of various recordings I had. I didn't even have a band at the time, but I called it the Ugly Janners of America. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> and you ended up playing with a bunch of people from kind of Zoogs' orbit, like M.B. Gordy, yes, Danny Buchanan. Yes, I borrowed some of the musicians from Zoogs' band. Zoogs borrowed some of the musicians from my band. Um, also, at the time... Um, it, before uh, in the early 80s, before Zooks kicked me out of the band uh, in 1982, uh, I was in the band with a guy named Larry Lashmer, L-A-J-M-E-R, who was a, a reed player from Cal Arts. 
and Zoogs had said something insulting to Larry, and Larry left the band. And uh, so when I started my band, I invited Larry. We were talking to Larry, and Larry got a bunch of uh, uh, people who had studied at Cal Arts to come and be in my band, uh, people like Jack Vees and M.B. Gordy, these amazing, incredible musicians, and the, the, the and Chas Smith, pedal steel player. The point being is I was able to, through Larry, to get musicians in my band who were in amazingly musically talented um, and had just amazing musical talent and which were much, much more um, musically talented than I ever was. But I was the leader of the band who were playing my music, but they were the ones that had all the musical talent. I was just the pretender rock guitar player moron. These guys were astounding. Okay, tell me about your, your famous song, A Blind Man's Penis. Okay, well, this doesn't relate to SST. Oh, and since we're talking about SST records, um, at some point I should, um, I should give you the story about how I was able to successfully wrest uh, 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 music publishing and songwriting royalties from Greg Gennett at SST Records, because that's a fun story. But essentially, Blind Man's Penis, when I was 19 years old, I was living at home with my parents in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I didn't have a job. I was collecting unemployment from a previous job I had as a cashier at a uh, uh, convenience store. And I was reading the Midnight Globe, which is a rag similar to the National Enquirer. In the back of the magazine in the classifieds section under music it said send there was an ad that said send your lyrics to nashville make twenty thousand dollars royalties and even at 19 i was skeptical enough to re realize that that advertisement was a fake come on it was a manipulative deceptive advertisement i said nobody can just make twenty thousand dollars in royalties by sending lyrics into these assholes in nashville and Hey, the podcast, I'm allowed to swear, oh, right? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. Okay, very good, great, great, the freedom of the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I sat down at my dead father's, uh, gr dead grandfather's manual typewriter, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny to write the most ridiculous, obscene lyrics possible to send to these, this, these people in Nashville it's an unfair stereotype, but we, but I conceived of people in Nashville living out in the country and being hillbillies and being dumb and jerks and into country music. It's a very unfair stereotype. I admit that. I think that intelligence lives everywhere. It lives in rural areas as well as cities. So it's a really gross, unfair stereotype. But it is a stereotype that I sort of bought into that people living out in Nashville or out in the country are just dumb rural hicks and are, are deserve to be fucked with. So I sat down at my dead grandfather's manual typewriter, and I typed off the most obscene, stupid, idiotic lyrics I could at the top of my head, and uh, sent it to the P.O. Box in Nashville. And all I wanted to do was get a fuck you letter back to me. I wanted them to write a letter to me telling me that I was a crazy hippie. I didn't know what I was doing. And these lyrics are very obscene and offensive and we don't like them and blah, blah, blah. Instead, a couple months, a month or two after I sent the letter, the, the lyrics in, I received a, a letter back with a contract that said, Dear Mr. Truby, we find your lyrics very worthy of the full Nashville production. Please remit $79.95 
and we'll send you the full Nashville production of your songs at the music. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. And at the time, I was a broke 19-year-old guy living at home with his parents, but I was getting these unemployment checks, and I didn't really need the money that badly because I, I didn't need to pay rent, and I was getting fed by my parents and stuff. So I had the money to send to Nashville. So I wrote them a check, and uh, a couple months after I sent the check in, I received a little acetate record, one-sided record with the song, as well as a reel-to-reel tape, three-inch reel-to-reel tape on really thin, cheap Mylar tape. And on one side of the stereo recording was a pre-recorded uh, music soundtrack with a pedal steel guitar, uh, piano, maybe a bass, and snare drum. And on the other side of the stereo uh, recording was a singer with a little slapback echo, half speaking, singing my stupid lyrics that I wrote. And when I listened to it, it was the most ridiculous, shoddy, uh, cheap, cheesy thing I ever heard. It was ridiculous. It sounded stupid, and I couldn't believe it. And I immediately wanted to get some sort of feedback about it. So I invited my brother Jay up to, to listen to the recording on my reel-to-reel tape recorder. I played it for him, and he started laughing. And a light bulb went up over my head. hate to use cliches, but I, I realized that this weird thing I did as a prank, if it will make my brother laugh, it will make other people laugh. I could make the whole world laugh with this ridiculous recording I made just for fun, as a mistake, as a prank I did to amuse myself. I want to uh, point your attention to the fact that People in the music business try and try and try and kill themselves to try to write a hit song and try to get attention and, and do, go through these, these formulas and knock themselves out and, and impoverish themselves and drive themselves crazy to get a hit record. And how I was able to get a minor hit record was just by doing a prank to amuse myself and then eventually it was able to make, make a record. It didn't make me lots of money. It, it wasn't a hit in the conventional set of, uh, sense of a term other than it, got, it became notorious and it became famous in a way, uh, featured on radio, on TV, and stuff like that, and, and, and people writing about it. But I never made a lot of money off of it, but it became a hit in that, in that um, aspect of the term due to a prank uh, due to uh, me amusing myself. So uh, uh, it, to me, that was very enlightening and insightful to do something because it made you happy rather than trying to pander to all the assholes in the, money, in the world and trying to, 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 to pander in order to get money. You know? So your $79 investment did not turn into $20,000. <laughs> It didn't turn out to $20,000. However, a couple of years ago, I licensed the recording to a indie filmmaker in, um, in Texas for, for $500. Also, it was uh, licensed to um, the Bar None Records for an anthology where I made $600. So actually, yes, I did get a profit over it. And over the years, I have made a little profit from, from my own Self, but not twenty, not quite twenty thousand. Right. 
but also all the mileage that I've gotten from it and all the attention and also I, and from all this noise I've made about myself, putting out the records and getting written about, also up, opened up some sexual opportunities uh, for me that I didn't fully take advantage of because I was always very very awkward about women. I was very slow to pick up on the signs, and by the time I was ready to make my move, they had already uh, lost their patience with me. But I, I wanted to let you know that due to the, my notoriety of making blind man's penis, as well as being in the band, uh, being uh, putting out records, did open up sexual opportunities to me that in L.A. that um, I have never um, uh, seen before or since. <laughs> okay. What about the prank phone calls? What's your most famous one, do you think? What's the what's the one most people know you for? Probably Mrs. R.J. Smith, where I called up and I'm talking to somebody about polar bears at the South Pole. Polar bears actually live at the North Pole in the Arctic, not in the Antarctic. But uh, but uh, I was being wise-ass, and we got into this, this uh, short but... Um, uh, um, frenetic uh, phone call where I'm offering to sell them drugs, and then they then they come back and say say that they'll call and have me arrested. I thought that was a pretty funny call. Um, to tell you the truth, at this point in my life, I'm a little divided about the prank phone calls. Um, somebody pointed out to me that it's cowardly to call up innocent people on the phone and harass them, and I agree with that um, take on the prank phone calls. And um, my, my, my philosophy now about prank phone calls, if you're going to call up and harass somebody, there's so many assholes in the world and so many mean people and so many devious motherfuckers out there that if you're going to prank somebody or you're going to screw around with somebody and, and aggravate, call, call the people that deserve it. Don't just, don't just victimize and, and don't harass innocent people. There's lots of people in the world that are not innocent and, and lots of people in the world, big, pompous, uh, arrogant, dishonest uh, businessmen, people in insurance, people in politics, uh, people running cults, all sorts of assholes in the world that deserve to have the, the rug pulled out from under them. So don't, so don't victimize um, innocent people. And the other thing I can say about prank phone calls, when I, when, I, when I reflect upon my own motives for doing that, uh, for doing prank phone calls and why I did that and why I re- incessantly recorded so many of them, the only excuse or alibi I can have for myself when I think about my own personality and perhaps why I did that. My parents were very, very strict. They were, they were strict to, to a degree that a lot of times I felt like I was suffocating and I couldn't do anything and I couldn't do anything without asking permission. And um, it just they were very hard, very hard, uh, strict authoritarians. I loved my parents, but they were very strict. And I felt that I couldn't breathe. And sometimes it would drive me nuts. And that I couldn't do anything, that I was terrified of doing anything or doing anything wrong or doing anything without asking permission first. So when I got into up to my teenage years, I started to push the boundaries a little bit to see if I can actually do things that I'm not supposed to do and get, get away with it. And so when they weren't home, I started to do these prank phone calls, and they were pretty funny. And also I recorded them because I was getting into tape recorders at the time. It was fun to have these recordings I can listen back to of these prank phone calls and pay them for my friends. So I really think my motivation for doing prank phone calls at that time in my life was to test the boundaries of what is possible with, without 
getting killed for it. And so I was able to do things that I'm not supposed to do, making ha harassing prank phone calls that are actually against the law and against telephone regulations, and you could actually be fined or have the cops, you know, take you to court for it. And I, I did it, and I was able to do it without being punished for it. And this, again, revealed to me the same thing that pranks revealed to me, is you can get away with all sorts of things in this world and not be punished for them and, and do things you're not supposed to do and, and, and actually have, it, have a positive or interesting outcome from it rather than being punished. So to me, uh, that was very exciting and liberating and insightful. It was, it was, it was enlightening. It, it gave me ideas. You know, the world doesn't have to be as fucked up and stupid as it does. We don't always have to be prostitutes looking for money and being these short-sighted conformist assholes and mediocrities. And that's the same sort of philosophy that Zudrit has. The world is rife with, with, with possibilities, and it's, us, it's up to us to explore those possibilities. And I think Zug's frustration and my frustration in life, we live in a world of conformists, that just do the same old boring, stupid, dipshit things, and those of us that want to do something different, we're outvoted and we're confined to the margins, and that's where our frustration and seething resentment comes in. Okay, if for people who have never heard the Ugly Janitors of America and want to check it out, I think you you mentioned an anthology. Is that a John Truby anthology? Um, yeah, uh, I would uh, I would direct people to Bandcamp, John Truby and the Ugly Janitors of America uh, on Bandcamp, and I have about 15 albums there, and there you can go and listen to it. I write a wide variety of music. I have the prank phone call albums there. I have electronic uh, music, experimental things. Uh, wacky tracks from live performances, and, and there's a whole. Uh, essentially, um, I write whatever music appeals to me, and it it goes the gamut. I don't I don't limit myself to any one style because I like all sorts of music, and Zoogs was some somewhat in the same vein. When you do when you when you play music enough and listen to enough different types of music and learn to play different music, all sorts of music. Uh, appeals to you, and if you write music, then different styles you'll be able to be a chameleon and 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 be comfortable in different styles and use whatever style is 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 appropriate of what you're trying to express. And my music reflects that. We were talking on a couple episodes ago, just the two of us on our podcast about Cordelia Records and these great obscure independent classic comps. How did you get uh, hooked up with with that label? Yeah, at the time that I released albums uh, or released records on Enigma, The Blind Man's Penis and my first album and the second album was on Re Restless Records, which is a subsidiary of uh, Enigma, as a result of these records going out and, and me getting the notoriety through magazine articles and uh, you know, zine articles, uh, I would always include my mailing address and I started to receive fan mail and P and. I would receive fan mail from overseas. Alan Jenkins, who runs Cordelia Records, contacted me and asked me if I wanted to put uh, contribute tracks to an album. So I did. I always wanted to be prolific and get music out any way possible. And so I did. A lot of the tracks I did in the early days, the, the recording quality is not that great because I had no money. I was working at these shit jobs for $5 an hour. What 
quality music recording can you make on when you when you're when you're that impoverished? But regardless, Alan Jenkins um, uh, asked me to to contribute a track. I think uh, Zoogs contributed a, a track to one of the uh, one of his anthologies, and then I think Zoogs put out an album on Cordelia. I put out an album on Cordelia. And then recently, just about a, uh, a year or two ago, uh, I put out a whole CD on Cordelia entitled My Hope is a Broken Dog uh, Fading Beneath the Evening Tide, which is actually an anthology of, ugly of the Ugly Janitors of America recordings over about three or four decades. And I'm very proud of that CD. Only 300 copies of that CD were pressed up but they are available online, and, and I, I thought it was a really cool CD put out. It's almost 80 minutes long. So you mentioned that you were able to wrangle back some publishing from Greg Ginn. Yes, here's the story about that. You're probably familiar that uh, Greg Ginn and SST Records were um, notorious for not paying uh, bands and songwriters and music publishers uh, for uh, tracks that were featured on SST Records. Uh, Zoogs felt that he didn't get properly paid for uh, the, the uh, for, uh, properly compensated for uh, uh, artist royalties and songwriting and music publishing royalties from his SST Records. And um, other bands were um, not being properly compensated uh, I, if you go back to this discography, you'll notice that Zoogs recorded a couple of my tunes, Alienation and When My Ship Rolls In, and these tunes were featured on a couple of his albums. Zoogs also recorded, I think, a couple Tim Buckley uh, tracks, and um, a couple of years after those uh, records came out, I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get, be getting mechanical royalties for these songs, so I haven't I received them. So I contacted SST Records, and uh, got no response. I don't. I don't know if I get a response or a screw you or something. But I got no response. I said this is not right. I'm due mechanical royalties. So I was angry about it because I was so poor. And when you're uh, when you're poor, generally that makes you enraged about things and you want to sell stores and you have all this resentment. So I took a day off work and I drove all the way down to Long Beach um, to file a. Um, a, a small claims uh, charge against SST in the Long Beach court, civil court, and then pay to have a, a marshal, a sheriff's marshal, go out and deliver this, this, the, uh, the demand to um, uh, SST records. And uh, then drove all the way back. I think it was, the amount was just for a couple hundred dollars, three, four hundred dollars uh, for the mechanical royalties that were owed me. But it was the, pr the principle of the thing. I was pissed off about it. Okay. And then in the interim, I was uh, at a friend's house, uh, Bruce Duff, a good friend of mine in L.A., and his girlfriend, the Di Diane Rindy, was a paralegal at Herb Cohen's office. And Herb Cohen used to be Zappa's manager and was also the manager at one time for uh, Tom Waits and Alice Cooper and Tim Buckley and all these others. Anyhow, um, she was a paralegal in his office, I mentioned the, the, the small claims uh, lawsuit that I, uh, or small claims uh, uh, motion that I set up against SST. She said that's not really a small claims thing. It's a copyright violation. It's much more serious. You should let us handle it. 
so I, I, I stopped the uh, small claims uh, motion and went uh, to sit down with Evan Cohen, who is uh, Herb Cohen's uh, nephew, and uh, Evan Cohen is a music business lawyer. At the time, their firm was looking to collect music publishing and songwriting royalties on behalf of Alice Cooper and uh, to Tim Buckley estate for songs uh, that were featured on uh, by Tim Buckley and Alice Cooper that were featured on SST recordings for which uh, mechanical royalties were never realized. So I sat down with Evan, and Evan said he'd be happy to bundle in my uh, songs in the uh, in the lawsuit that he was pursuing, uh, the motion he was pursuing against uh, SST. And so there were uh, lawyer, there were letters back and forth between Greg Ginn and uh, and uh, Evan Cohen's office. And uh, Greg Ginn in, at one point claimed that I didn't actually write the songs they wrote. It was just bullshit. It was just a smokescreen of bullshit. Finally. Uh, the, the bottom line was is that um, uh, Evan Cohen uh, threatened to take, uh, uh, demanded that SST show up in federal district court in West L.A. to uh, answer these charges of uh, willful uh, withholding of, uh, of uh, songwriting and, and music public royalties. And as a result of that, uh, Evan was, then uh, uh, Greg Ginn finally cried uncle and barfed at the royalties. But as a result of his obfuscation and willful um, uh, obstruction in the whole matter, um, Evan Cohen quadrupled the amount of payment of the royalties. So I got a check for sixteen hundred bucks, which felt really good when I was really poor there. So I, I did get satisfaction of it, unlike most bands right. and uh, songwriters and musicians that dealt with SST. What's next, John? Are you still are you going to be doing some more recordings? Uh, yeah, I can only do recording when I have money. Um, right, I, 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 right now, during this, co- this pandemic, I'm sitting around and playing a lot of guitar that I usually don't have the, the time or energy to do when I am a wage slave. So I am loving this time due to the plague, and, I, and some music is starting to ooze out of me, some actual songs that I'm playing on guitar, and I'm fucking loving it. It's, it's, it's really exciting. Uh, so I, I, music is able to actually come out of me because I have the time to sit down and play. I only record when I have the money. I only have the money when I'm able to go in my, into my retirement savings. I'm not yet retired. And... Um, Take break off a chunk of it and go and blow it, and then and then um, uh, press records that don't sell. Um, so I, I I'm at the point where I can't really be burning up this money if I'm if I'm manufacturing records that don't sell. So if people want to hear my music, they can easily uh, buy it from Bandcamp. If anybody wants a physical record, they can actually contact me, and I have a whole catalog. We we have five albums out on actual LPs I can, I, I can sell, but um, I plan to do some more recording whenever I, I, I can get some spare money to burn up in a recording studio, then I'll probably put it on Bandcamp. I will not um, manufacture more LPs unless I can financially justify it. However, I have all this music in me dying to come out, so I'm loving this downtime from the, the plague epidemic 
so that, that I have time to sit here and play music for hours. And, uh, and a lot of people having difficulty with it. They can't stand being closer at home. This is my heaven. This is my heaven to play, t- to have time to, to make music and play guitar and read books. This is fucking heaven to me. <laughs> well, make the best of a bad situation, I guess. Yes. John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Very good. I thank you very much for your interest. Really appreciate it. Okay, Brent? Thank you. Take care. You take care. Right on. Bye. Bye. Right on, John. That guy. (laughs) That guy. Wow. He, uh, that's some serious knowledge. Like, um, great, amazing stories. And the dude... He loves the self-isolation, man. Yeah. So he can, he, so he can create. I kind of like that. Yeah. Honestly, man, like I wish we could interview Zoog's Rift, but we can't. So it's great to get some insight into Zoog's, and he he gives some great insight into you know some of uh, you know Zoog's personal problems, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, John was definitely. The, the thing that um, struck me is like the abs- absurdist creativity and all of the crazy things that John had done and is still doing is uh, and I mean, he's not he's not that well known. Neither is Zoogs. But I mean, you can totally, totally see why these guys found each other in in the in the universe right these guys had to work together you know oh they were kindred spirits for sure yeah zoogs talks about him in the book he talks about that show actually that john mentions where gloop Knox and the stick people were playing where (laughs) where they met each other and dude like there is a separate band camp for for gloop Knox and then another one for john truby anybody who's listening to this show especially if you're into zoogs like check that stuff out but I don't know. Have you heard much of John Truby's music, Ryan? No, no. And I I have not yet uh, taken the time to check it out since I heard the interview and started digging into this record this week. But it's on the to-do list. Some of his stuff, like the dude can write a song, man. It He almost has like a soul Motown vibe to a lot of his stuff. Like it's all over the map, right? There's yeah. weird experimental stuff. But yeah. there are whole albums with just like, these. he could have had hit songs in the eighties, if he was, you know, like part of the, you know, maybe part of the system or something like he can really write a song. Yeah. And, and he talks about it in the interview, but he had amazing players in his band too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was, there was this circle of absurdist, prolific, um, very, very capable players back then. And, uh, it's it's just a bizarre bizarre s- story and situation. What about uh, John taking Greg to small claims court, man? What? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I'm like, man, oh man, is like, yeah, why not, man? I'm gonna just like, I'm gonna file a writ. I'm gonna file a writ, baby. <laughs> I, I need my tapes, and he got like fifteen hundred bucks or whatever. I love that. Yeah. Well, man, if no one's heard that, um, that, uh, blind man's penis song, like you owe yourself to hear that song, especially, <laughs> especially when you hear, after you hear him tell the story about how it was created. 
So let me let me ask you this. I have a I've never spoken to you about this ever ever, but I have a sneaking suspicion that when you were a kid, you were really into those prank phone call tapes, weren't you? Not the Zoogs one or not the John Truby ones, but I I had some well, I was I think we made our own prank phone call tapes. <laughs> I just have the sneaking suspicion that like you and your buddies would have found it as, as teenagers and just would have went ape shit on them. Well, we would have, if we would have known about it for sure, it would have been right up our alley. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I never really got into any of that, but, um, wasn't there a whole research series book on pranks that maybe. Jello Biafra was in too? Yeah, maybe. Oh, he's big on pranks. Wonder- Jello loves his pranks. Yeah, I wonder if John Truby's in that research magazine pranks book. Well, he should be. Yeah, yeah. Some of my favorite stuff from the interview is there's a Bruce Duff reference. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Forgetting so much Duff and Doll lately. It's a killer. Yeah. I like how he's talking about amputees in, in limbo. Contrasting to this album, you can really hear... Like what we were talking about last week when you listen to this record. Yes. And about oh, yeah. how he got pissed off. And, you know, I think Truby's talking about it being repetitive, simplistic rock, but with Zoogs's own twist. And whereas this record is has some ultra complexity to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can't stress enough, man. And like people should check out his band camp and support the guy too. You can buy, I think you can buy the entire like discography that's up on his band camp for x amount of money and it would be well worth the money for sure and hopefully he'll take that money and put out some of the stuff that he's writing during this quarantine oh yeah i bet you that stuff is wild too and good yeah i really want to hear that john sharkey stuff oh yeah (laughs) his his you know what his keys playing is awesome on this record like i it's some of my favorite parts of this record every day when i go home i drive by this business called uh mako signs and it just their logo <laughs> just says mako and there's a giant shark on the logo yeah we've got sharky's pawn shop here in town and i think of <laughs> mako sharky there too should we get to the tracks let's do it history lesson part two Okay, Ryan, so this came out on Snout on LP in 1979 and then on SST on cassette and LP in 1987, and it's also been released digitally with some bonus tracks. So track one, side one, is Restrooms of Erotic Fantasies, written by Zoogs, and this will be the first one we have to kind of specify who wrote what because Richie has some credits on this record. Yeah, it's almost... And I was going to say almost 50-50, maybe about, maybe about uh, 35-65, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, but this one's, this one's just like a, uh, a Woodwinds Flutes instro, just uh, to kick off side A. I didn't see any credits for, for who's playing that flute, but you can hear someone coughing, and it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like whoever's coughing goes, fart band, and then you you can hear a toilet flushing. <laughs> Did you catch that? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Looks like I'll have to re-listen. Hey, you know what I will say though, of the last four, this one 
is and has always been, and I, and I haven't listened to these four for a long time. I'm glad we have. Uh, but this one is by a country mile, my favorite of the four records. Mine I don't too. know what you're, I, is I, that I, right? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's the best record. It's too bad. It's last, but maybe it's not, you know, yeah. we're, we're closing with a flourish here. Yep. Okay, then we're we're on to The Great Apes, Eight Grapes, written by Richie. Sounds like mostly bass and drums. Sounds like two yeah, basses to me. Yeah, it's a slinky tune, yeah. for sure. This one and restrooms are from the Bay Sound reproduction recordings in Oakland, engineered by Glenn Oe and Gene Mick. The snout version has some pretty detailed liner notes. Yeah, the SST one that I have is sparse, man, sparse. Okay, then we're on to Lobotomy 4, written by Zoogs. This one's titled Krugerand 4 on the Snout LP. I'm assuming Krugerand is like German for lobotomy or something, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. It's 35 seconds long, Vibes or Marimba. I can never tell the difference between Vibes and Marimba and some sax. This one's recorded at Pranava Productions in Hollywood by Hal Hellerman. A good way to tell the difference between the vibes and the marimba is like the vibes often have some pretty serious reverb going on with them. Oh yeah. Where the vibes sound, you know, more earthy like wood. Okay, then we're on to Feeling in My Bones written by Zoogs. I like this one, especially the guitar solo. Yeah. Sounds like probably Eric Williams on guitar. And I, I tried to find some more about him because John made it sound like, you know, he went on to have quite the career and I couldn't really, there's, you know, Eric Williams is kind of a, a common name, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's not that, it's not unique enough to like zero in on him on Discogs or anything. Yeah. This one almost has like a fifties rock and roll feel to it. Yep. For sure. And then we're on to a track I really liked called The Night They All Came Out, written by Richie. Yeah, some funky slapping and popping and some killer saxes going on on this one. Every time I listen to this, I kept thinking to myself, like, I am certainly no expert on hip-hop history, but the two names that I could think of that are, like, early hip-hop pioneers, Africa Bambata and Grandmaster Grandmaster Flash, this song predates both of them by five, four or five years. Like, this is recorded in April of 78. Mm-hmm. And it's like a hip-hop song. Yeah. Like, Zoogs is rapping on it. <laughs> Did Zoogs invent rap? Well, I don't think he invented it, but he certainly, like, should be mentioned. This song should be mentioned as, like, an early hip-hop song. Yeah. Potentially. Potentially. Okay. We're on to my favorite track on the album for sure, Lazy Susan. Might be my favorite Zoog song we've heard yet on any of the podcast episodes. I love how it transitions out of the verses into the chorus. And I can definitely hear the Zappa influence on this one. Oh yeah. It's it's a funky, loungy number with just some killer marimba going down. Track 7, Ostriches Have Sex Too, You Know, written by Zoogs. <laughs> Started running out of ways to describe some of this stuff. Um, It's a far out song, but cool. Probably Eric Williams on lead guitar. Cool guitar 
tone and a great solo. It's it's got like a renaissance like a medieval type of vibe to it for sure. Yeah. It was a favorite for me. Then track eight, I did so. This is one of those tunes that Zoogs was maybe referencing when he called this era slapsticky. Yeah, well, it's, I don't know the name of the song, but it's like, it's to the tune of that, you know, the circus song. I, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's like entry of the gladiators or I, I just, um, you know, the, the clown song, the, the three ring circus song. Yeah. That's what, that's what this is kind of too, right? Yeah. I, so this would have been a Zoba song originally. Ah, I think it was on their, their demo tape. Okay. Then flip it over and we're onto the title track. Idiots on the miniature golf course written by Zoogs. 28 seconds long, pretty wild, very complex guitar, bass, and vibes, or marimba. It's, uh, it it again has this renaissance, almost baroque sounding vibe to it. Track two, Golden Showers, written by Richie. This is basically a lounge song. Yep, I had the same thing, lounge tune. Track three, Judge Bludge, the Hangin' Judge. Written by Richie and Zoogs. This one's cool. Richie's a good drummer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They can all play. Yep. Track four, Krugerand 2. 37 seconds. Sounds like a sax loop with some vibes over top. Uh, On the SST cassette version of it, they call this Lobotomy 2. Yep. Track five, The Rabbit and the Lady. Written by Zoogs. This is the one that has Sharky on it, I think, and AKA Harry Tomorrow and, <laughs> and Steve Bissell. Steve was the guitarist in Sharky's band on the album Zooks produced. So this, I'm thinking this may have been recorded during that session because Zooks mentions it in his book and it's listed on like the snout LP as a separate session, but also at Pranava. So maybe that's where that album was recorded. Okay. Just a guess. Track six on side two, you can go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, it's a jazzy instro written by Zoogs. Then we're on to Dinkle Dance. We've talked about this one before. Yeah, this is our second time we're doing the dance on the show. Is this, I forgot to reference which one, which ones are on uh, Looser Than Clams. This one's on there for sure though. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. This is, an all-time favorite for me too. I mean, it starts out for the the first forty-five seconds are absolutely ridiculous, but it morphs into a wicked song. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, it's this... got those fuzz, fuzzed keys, violin, and when the 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 sax is panned, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, this is the one Craig heard on the radio that made him like want to find out Zoom's rift. He mentions it in our interview with him. Right. I like when it goes. That's when I take down my, and then it just goes to that on the violin. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. When it shifts into the rock part, it's just, there's a super bitching guitar tone. Oh yeah. Pretty sure it's Zoog's tearing it up on his ARP 2600. It's, there's a definite Zappa vibe to it. It's funny. Like 
I was thinking about this, and we all, you know, again, hard to mention Zoogs without at some point mentioning Zappa, and Zoogs didn't like the comparison, but was a fan. I was kind of thinking it's like when you get into Zoogs Rift and some of this stuff, it's like Zappa was like the safer one almost. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, track eight. We're All Born on Little Planets, written by Zoogs. This is a wild one. Pretty rip and guitar again. Track nine, What Can We Feed to the Lions, written by Zoogs. Another very comp complex song. Again, you can just hear that contrast of shifting from the, you know, the really complicated stuff to the more simpler repetitive amputee stuff. And then, Ryan, if you listen to the... To the digital version, there's three more songs. Would you fib to the FBI? I peeked into Devil's Secret Hell Files and The Man Who Slugged Your Mother. Uh, the Man Who Slugged and Would You Fib are definitely Zobis songs from the With No Apparent Reason demo from 1977. But the highlight is I peeked into Devil's Secret Hell Files. Not sure if that's a Zobis <laughs> song, but it's killer. And do you have to catch that on Spotify? Is that the deal? Yeah, or probably iTunes if you buy it on iTunes or whatever. Okay. And it's not on the snout version either, hey? No. Okay. Got to get me some snout copies. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on the look snout. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How about some artwork? It's pretty simple, at least on my SST copy. It's just Zoogs on the cover with a green background and his hair slicked back and he's looking at you with this deadly stare. Yeah, and the back has a pretty badass looking Richie Haas. He kind of looks like Gigi Allen or something. Oh yeah, totally. I do love how he's got the Motley Crue dots over his uh, his name on this record. You know, he's kind of 50-50 yeah. for the Motley Crue dots. Yeah. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, the snout version has Zoogs and Richie on the back. A different photo, though. The photo on the cover of that one is taken by Tom Nagy, who was in Zobus. That version is dedicated to Don Van Vliet. I don't think it says that on the SST one. It says that on the back of the snout version. And it also says, A very special thanks to Laura Bonanno and Ethel Polakowski. Ethel is his mom, and Laura is Laura Rift. It also says album design, Polakowski the Magnificent. And then it says, remember, it is now evident that Martians like to devour the flesh of giant pandas. Dada lives. And it says, this is a collection of recordings dating back anywhere from April 1978 to November 1979. And the title of that one is Zoog's Rift's Micro Mastodons with special guest star Richie Haas. And they talk about it in both the book and the documentary. Richie had been pushing pretty hard to to be co-credited. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Obviously, they dropped the Micromastodons when they reissued it. Yeah. It says uh, Zoog, Zoog's Rifts Micromastodons features on the back of the SST one. And then it lists all the band members there. Richie, Eric Williams... Jim Simcoe on sax, Mark Zamoski on drums. Good drummer, by the way. Yeah, I don't know what he played on, because Rich played drums on most of this. 
Yeah. Um, I couldn't, f- oh, I couldn't find where he was. Oh, like on which tracks? Yeah. Okay. Well, I just assumed it was, it was him playing. You, you think it's uh Richie who does most of the kit work? Yeah, the, he did. He did all the, okay. most of that one session, the main session that they did. Okay. Well then I'm giving props to Richie actually. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's why I said Richie's an awesome drummer. Okay. Um, yeah, Jim Simcoe on sax, Mark on drums, John Van Zelm Truby, rhythm guitar, John Sharkey piano, and Steve Bassel on guitar as well. So quite the band of uh, musicians here. We'll have to watch for those tracks way later when we get to the, the rest of the Zoog stuff that John John talks about in the interview. Yeah. Are we done? I don't want to end the Zoog's train, but I think it's time for the ballot result. Ballot result. I think we might have some uh, creative tension here on picking for this ep- for this episode because you already gave away what your favorite is, and it's not mine. Are you sure we didn't do Dinkle Dance on Looser Than Clams, though? You're the keeper of the ballot result. What was on Looser Than Clams? Oh, geez. That's going to take me a minute. Look it up. We picked Mutatus Mutandus. Yeah, that's right. Since we're, I've been singing them all, I'll sing this one too. My pick anyways. My <laughs> head spins round and round like a lazy Susan. It's good, eh? Yeah, it's good. But we can do Dinkle Dance. Well, I would go actually like, so Dinkle Dance is up there for me. I do like Lazy Susan. I also like uh, Ostriches. What that tune morphs into, I'm all over that. Yeah, that was one of mine and The Night They All Came Out was one of mine too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm pretty sure though on uh, Looser Than Clams, I picked Mutatus Mutandus. And because of your amazing singing voice, you should pick this one. Oh, yeah? I'm yeah. going with Lazy Susan if I get to pick. Let's do it. All right. Dunzo. Whew, we did it, Ryan. You know what? I'm already going through Zoog's Rift withdrawal, like right now. <laughs> right now. I'm like, I need some, especially nowadays. I don't know why, but some of these Zoog's Rift songs like really, really fit the mood in society right now. Yeah, man. Zoog's was hitting the spot this month. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't deny the Zoogs. Yeah. And now I'm just going to be counting the episodes. I used to be counting the episodes down until we got to the next Firehose record, and now I'm counting it down to the Zoogs. Right on. Well, it won't be that long. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Brant, next week, it's a blast from the past with SST-124, the blast single, School's Out. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.